0: Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buker. Here's your host... Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buker.
1: This is On the Ball on the United Wecast Network, and I am Rick Buecher. You can see me on FS1, hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on the Fox Sports app and at foxsports.com. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram, at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places... But there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA, and that is here. As anyone who has followed my work knows, I am loath to be critical of NBA officiating and I don't subscribe to any of the usual conspiracy theories, such as the league having games called a certain way in order to have one team or star win or to extend a series or any of that stuff. I spent a week, this is the reason why. I spent a week as what would be now called a G League referee. Then it was the D League or the Developmental League, uh, and working a couple of preseason games. Uh, courtesy of Ed Rush, who was then the NBA's former head of referees. You probably know him best as the guy who Mark Cuban at one point said uh, would be better, or he wouldn't trust him running a Dairy Queen. Ed was a good man and was an outstanding referee and understood the game. When Mark Cuban, as a brand new owner, wanted to bring analytics into the officiating realm, and heard Ed talk about managing games. He misunderstood what Ed knew and believed, and the two got crossways. And Mark being an owner and Ed being essentially an employee of the league, Mark won that battle. But in no way was it a reflection of what Ed knew or believed or understood about the game. Anyway, at one point during my tenure with ESPN, Ed and I were both staying at the LA airport Marriott and we ran into each other in the hotel gym. And I was running on the treadmill and he observed that I was in good enough shape to be an official. I think I was still running sub seven minute miles at that point. And I told him that I'd always wanted to do a first person story As an official, uh, having grown up reading George Plimpton and some of the first-person work that he did to get inside the game, I was looking for any and all opportunities to replicate what he had done. So we agreed because Ed was also hoping that he could give people more insight into uh, referees and how they worked and uh, get rid of some of the conspiracy theories by allowing people to pull back the curtain. So we agreed to uh, check with our respective bosses and see if we could work something out, and we did. Uh, now, the original plan was for me to keep training until I could work an NBA preseason game, and uh, but I was with ESPN at the time, as I said, and they weren't willing to build the time it would take to do that into my schedule, seeing as I was also a sideline reporter, sports center analyst, and a senior writer for the magazine. So we settled for me spending three days in Marietta, Georgia as part of the up-and-coming referees crew. Uh, and the group that I was with at the time, I'm sure you uh, are very familiar with a number of them now. They're, they're now established vets. Zach Zarbra, and Ed Malloy among them. Uh, Now, the league was just introducing the use of videotape and, as I said, analytics to measure the accuracy and efficiency of officiating. So I didn't get a whole lot of that. Um, But I did learn how much refs love testing each other when it comes to rules, coming up with crazy hypothetical situations and asking what the call should be. They, they are very much into the minutiae of the rule book. Uh, and I don't mean when they're preparing for a game. I mean all the time. On the way to the arena, over lunch, there was a bus that took us to and from collectively from the hotel to the uh, the arena, and so on the on the bus, uh, having a morning cup of coffee, hanging out at night. It's almost like a second language. And if you've officiated, it's very understandable why, because no one wants to be caught in one of those situations in an actual game and not be sure what the rule is and if you don't know if you've never officiated i'd say that maybe 50 or 60 percent of the calls in any game are black and white and the rest are a shade of gray Uh, all of which is why i know officials don't come into a game or a playoff series with an agenda other than, than to officiate the game and try to provide a level playing field. Now, they may come in with preconceived notions about certain things. It's the only way to stay ahead of all of the things that players and teams are doing in order to try to get a competitive edge. And their attempts to provide a level playing field doesn't mean that they always succeed, it doesn't mean that they don't make mistakes. It's a matter of questioning why they make those mistakes. And officials are human. They have emotions like the rest of us. But if they punish a player, the primary motive from those that I've worked with and observed is that they think the player is trying to gain an unfair advantage or is screwing up that level playing field with tactics outside the boundaries of the game. Now, at the same time, they have to be careful that their punishment doesn't tip the scales and unduly give the opposition an advantage. And as I said, million shades of gray. Figuring out where the line is, is a constant challenge. It's not something that is set in stone. Whenever I see somebody just call the game, just impose the rules, just there there's no such thing anybody who ever has said that i sp- i assure you has never blown a whistle in a game at any significantly competitive level maybe with kids who by and large aren't going to complain and and don't and have no idea of the tricks of the trade for the most part that might be changing now but for the most part but if you get into it at any level where the players understand that there's certain things that they can do to try to influence the referee, then or push the boundaries of how you can handle the ball, all of that, how you can defend, then you're getting into the shades of gray. And this is where it gets tricky and where today's game, I believe, is more susceptible to that gamesmanship than ever before. And understand this before we go any further. The referees that you see on the floor don't unilaterally decide how to deal with that gamesmanship or how to interpret the rules because there is rule interpretation for everything. The referees that you see are instructed by their superiors and the league office how they want the games to be officiated. That message is sent through the reviews that they get of their work and who is promoted to work playoff games, all-star games, all the benefits. And I believe they have been made susceptible to undermining games. The referees have been made susceptible to undermining games because of how they've been told to judge that gamesmanship. The biggest issue is the sensitivity that has been established when it comes to contact. And while I don't know this for a fact, I believe it's because the league knows that offense sells. I was around, I went to the meetings where the league made a concerted effort to say, we're eliminating the physicality of the 90s. We're, we're not going to have, we're gonna, we want freedom of movement. And since then, the league has just continued to expand that liberal interpretation of you can't really get in the way of anybody and we see the same mindset in the NFL and Major League Baseball the rules are being interpreted in a way that benefits the offense the reason it's a bigger issue in basketball than any of the other sports is because there is constant interaction between players with or around the ball and in the case of football you're allowed a certain degree of physicality it's just part of the game And there's the impression that basketball is not a contact sport. And yet it very much is. I feel as if the NBA in some ways is trying to make it not a contact sport. I can't recall a time in my life watching hoops that I've seen players routinely hit the floor as much as I do now. It used to be something that you guarded against unless you were diving for a loose ball. You didn't want to hit the floor because now you were out of the play. You had to get up and get going again after you fell. But now, after every drive, every shot, the player with the ball is falling down. Or the defensive player coming around a screen is falling down. Anytime two players come into contact, one or the other is snapping his head or throwing his arms or jerking a limb as if he's been smacked. Now, asking the referees to see through all that and discern what is legitimate contact on a case-by-case basis or what has been exaggerated is exhausting. If it's as tiresome for you to watch as it is me, imagine being responsible for blowing or not blowing the whistle every time somebody snaps their neck. There has been a lot of debate in particular, about how the Warriors-Lakers series has been officiated, largely because of the massive discrepancy in free-throw shot between the two teams. But refs getting fooled by players falling down with little or no contact has marred every playoff series that I've watched, to one level or another. And it's not just about free-throws. Let's be clear. The kind of fouls that are being called, charges versus blocks when a player is driving to the basket, those are huge. If it's a charge, that's a turnover. That's a loss of possession. If it's a block, chances are it's on a really good defender. And now him being in foul trouble, him thinking that I've made a legitimate play, I've gotten there in time, because if he's not, he's probably not going to try to draw the charge, Is has a huge influence on that player's minutes, on how aggressive or physical he can be for the remainder of that quarter, or that half, or the game. In Game 5 of the Nuggets' Suns series, Landry Shamet lost his balance going for a rebound and fell out of bounds still holding the ball. Rather than simply give the ball to Denver, the baseline ref claimed that he was pushed out of bounds by Nikola Jokic. Replays showed that no such thing happened. Now, previously, referees would have recognized that it was Jokic and it was Landry Shamet, and it would have had to have been really convincing for them to call a foul. That doesn't happen today. Devin Booker was awarded free throws on a drive to the basket when his shot was blocked by rookie Christian Brown. Now, Brown's arms came down to block the shot, but he clearly got the ball first. And the penalty of what they call unofficially roofing, where rather than having your hands straight up and having verticality, you bring them down, which then if there's any contact, that is supposed to be a foul, as opposed to if there's contact and the hands are straight up. That doesn't apply no matter what. It only applies if there's contact. And I'm not pointing these two particular instances out to suggest that Phoenix has received a favorable whistle. The Nuggets are guilty of the same histrionics and have gotten calls that they did not deserve as well. But the Devin Booker-Christian Brown example that would be more likely to go to Devin Booker. What we're seeing now are players who really aren't established in the league, haven't proved that they can consistently get a step on their defender, and therefore, if they're held, it's giving a, a lesser player an unfair advantage. That used to be built into the interpretation. I don't see that so much now. Back to Lakers-Warriors, it has been pointed out by pro-Lakers voices that the trend we've seen in the series, the Lakers taking far more free throws, is a reflection of what the two teams did in the regular season. The Lakers took by far the most free throws during the regular season of any team in the league, averaging nearly 27 a game. The Warriors were dead last, averaging 20. Warriors opponents also averaged the sixth most over the course of the season, 25, while Lakers opponents average the fewest, 21. Now keep in mind, listen to those numbers and the difference. 27 to 20, 25 to 21. There's not a great disparity overall between first and last in these instances. So while one team having an advantage over the other is certainly understandable, one team having a major advantage over the other shouldn't be assumed simply because of where they ranked as opposed to what the actual numbers tell us the separation should be. Now, again, one other element to consider is that those are regular season numbers. And if you go back through the history of the league or you go back just through the last few years and you look at how teams ranked during the regular season and how they ranked in the postseason when it comes to free throws or fouls or defense overall or any of that, the two don't always mirror each other. Just worth it, worth understanding before we take regular season numbers and use them as proof of something, of meaning something when it comes to the postseason. So, uh, for instance, with the Warriors-Lakers in Game 4, the Warriors had 12 free throws, Lakers had 20. That looks reasonable. And I would argue that the Warriors are doing themselves a disservice if there's a reason for the separation. It's because of how the Warriors are approaching a certain part of the game. They're not working harder to avoid switches by fighting over screens. Not the way the Lakers are. And it, that thereby eliminates one of the trickiest situations for a referee to call, which is what constitutes a legal screen. You've probably heard the Warriors complaining that they are being called for illegal screens. The reason that they're being called for illegal screens is because the Lakers defenders are fighting to get over them. Particularly Dennis Schroeder or anybody who's guarding Steph is trying to chase him over the screen. The Warriors are not even giving themselves a chance to embellish the contact by the screener and get that call by fighting over it. Which in most cases would be Andrew Wiggins fighting over the screen to stay with LeBron James. This has created two problems for the Warriors. One, because the Lakers are fighting over them and got a handful of illegal screen calls when the chasing player fell, Dennis Schroeder fully admitting that he's exaggerating the contact in order to get the call, they have those calls going against them. Those are essentially turnovers which the Warriors are doing everything they can to avoid. The second repercussion is that the Lakers know that they can get the switch that they're looking for anytime they want. Time and again, the Lakers set screens in order to get Klay Thompson or Steph Curry guarding LeBron James, who then proceeds to back them down. Now, LeBron's lack of a legitimate post game is exposed time and again because... If he isn't fouled, he probably isn't scoring. He looks, let's face it, you can be the biggest LeBron fan in the world. He looks uncomfortable even being guarded by Steph Curry when he's looking to back him down. Doesn't know exactly what he wants to do or how to move. But LeBron is playing the game within the game, and I respect him that it's something he doesn't necessarily do well or look good doing but is doing it anyway because it's not about the scoring. I mean, it would be nice, but that's not the primary thing. It's about sapping some of Clay and Steph's energy, particularly in their legs. Anyone who has played knows how much energy it takes to hold your ground against someone who is posting you up and outweighs you by 50 or 60 pounds, which is what the two of them are facing in defending LeBron. I can't help but feel that... The Splash Brothers' errant long-range shooting, Steph was 3 for 14 on threes and Clay was 3 for 9 in Game 4, is a byproduct of all that work. It doesn't do anything to help their burst in attacking the rim or being able to stop and pop and still get the same elevation and airspace either. So, end of game, they look like they're not quite getting it done. You can credit at least some of that to having to defend LeBron and hold him off as best they can multiple times throughout the course of the game. Steve Kerr has been harping on the idea that the Lakers flopping late in Game 4 and in general during the series has had a big impact and suggests that the league has to find a way to curb it. He's been remarkably passive-aggressive in how he's phrased it, giving the Lakers credit for fooling the referees while suggesting that their tactics should be outlawed. Now, critics will point to the stats and the idea that the Warriors are not attacking the rim at the same frequency as the Lakers, but that's not really the issue here. It's not, it's not, while I haven't talked to Steve about this, I would bet that his biggest reason for taking issue with the way their games against the Lakers have been officiated is when the fouls on the Warriors are being called and who those fouls are being called for. It doesn't have anything to do with who's attacking the rim more than the other team. And you can foul somebody as they're trying to get around the screen or on the perimeter as much as you can if they get to the cup.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
1: It's also one thing for Anthony Davis and LeBron James to get foul calls when they're on offense and attacking the basket. It's an entirely different thing when Austin Reeves and Dennis Schroeder are getting calls, particularly when they're on defense. And I will say, as much as I admire Austin's game, who is also getting the offensive whistle, I am shocked by the respect the officials give him at both ends of the floor. Generally, a player has to prove that fouling is the only way to stop him from scoring to get the benefit of the doubt on 50-50 calls. He has to demonstrate that athletically, he's going to beat that almost any defender and certainly the defender in front of him routinely unless that defender is allowed to hold, grab, or do something that pushes the margin. Reeves has somehow skipped over the prove-it stage and is making his living off of dramatizing contact and then shooting for and-ones or free throws. It's even more pronounced on defense where Reeves is consistently hunted. He seems to be getting a sizable amount of respect there as well as far as not being called for fouls. Dennis Schroeder is a very good defensive player, but he certainly does his share of grabbing and holding and little tricks. And good on him. Uh, it takes effort and energy to do that. has to know, has to know where the line is drawn. I, I respect and admire players who are willing to do that kind of dirty work, but there's usually a trade off that referees make with players since calling every single infraction would stretch games games to five or six hours and so the trade-off can be I'll let you do this but you can't do this as in I'll let you hand fight a little bit or hip check or get a hand uh, ride a guy a little bit but I'm not giving you the liberty of running into a screen falling down and being awarded a foul or I'm giving you that but you're going to have to stay in front of the guy just moving your feet. No hand usage at all. Because here's the thing, and this comes with the screens. Unless a screen setter blatantly moves sideways, the defensive player doesn't have to run into him. Every player has the agility to slide around that screen, unless the, the screener is coming at them and closes the distance. But for the most part, if there's contact... It's because the defender chooses to run into that defender rather than getting around him and chasing. The route may be a little longer, but the fact is he doesn't have to create that contact in a lot of instances. And what I see all too often are players who are purposely running into the screen, falling down, and if the screener shows the least bit of movement, they're getting the call. Whatever happens, if somebody falls down, there's going to be a whistle. And that's the problem. The players know that at this point. That's why guys are falling down left and right. Because they'll roll the dice. And in some instances, having a whistle or a call is a benefit. If if your team needs rest, if you have an older team, again, sort of like the Lakers. And I know overall their age is not that great, but... They, they don't play the same way that the, the Warriors do. Essentially, uh, Anthony Davis and LeBron James having to play as hard as they have to play, that's the concentrated place of the age and the effect of playing up and down or having rest or no rest throughout the course of the game. Again, either team goes to the free throw line that can be rest and if that's what your team needs more than anything else then rolling the dice on a certain play by falling down isn't necessarily the worst thing to do it can be a benefit even if you don't get the call as an aside you don't have to be as you don't have to be set for a screen to be legal can we can we please everybody understand that your feet can move you also don't have to be set to draw a charge What you can't be doing is moving forward into the offensive player or still trying to get to the spot or extending a body part to get in the way. You are allowed to move your feet to firm yourself up to take the pending blow, impending blow. And the same principles apply when setting a screen your feet can move. What you can't do is contort a part of your body outside the normal frame, like throw out a hip or a knee or move into a defensive player. Now, I'd quote the exact wording of the rule in the NBA rulebook, but I don't have my copy with me, and I don't really want to trust what might be on the interwebs. You get the gist, though. One of the things we overlook in examining a series often enough is the choices made during the regular season that impact. The Warriors are looking to Moses Moody now to give them quality minutes after rarely playing him during the regular season. Anthony Lamb, who hasn't played more than garbage time in this series, got more regular season run than Moody. Jonathan Kaminga, who has only seen garbage time in this series, played more regular season minutes than Moody. How much better might Moody be if he had gained more regular season experience? The reality is that Steve Kerr, invested in a number of players during the regular season that are not paying dividends for one reason or another now. He tried to cultivate James Wiseman, who is now in Detroit. He gave Jordan Poole a larger role and lived with plenty of decisions and shots that are not that different from the ones that he's made in this series that have him on the bench. And it's the latest ones have simply been more costly and harder to look over. Compare that to how Darvin Ham has handled the Lakers. Lonnie Walker's performance in game four surprised a lot of people, but Lonnie had already gotten some burn and performed well in game three, so it shouldn't have been a total surprise. He was in and out of the rotation during the regular season, but when he played, he got quality minutes, not just mop up duty, and it was made clear to him look, you didn't do anything wrong. We're just, we got new pieces, and we're approaching it a different way stay ready darvin consistently demonstrated that everyone should stay ready because they could have their number called even if it meant stepping in for a starter or someone who normally played heavy minutes but was struggling he hasn't had any hesitancy to play d low until d low's not hitting shots and then sitting him down and not playing him in the fourth quarter everybody understands that how you're playing is going to to determine whether you continue to get minutes. Whatever is best for the team. I don't know if that message has has been sent clearly with the Warriors consistently. Now, those who want to bag on Darvin's X's and O's or his limited play calls from the bench or that he stands on the sidelines with his hands in his pocket are oblivious to what running a team with LeBron James is actually like. At this stage of LeBron's career, Play calls or suggestions. He's going to do what he wants to do. Ham would look stupid attempting to give micro-detailed instructions when he's not the one deciding what they're going to run a fair amount of the time, possession to possession. Darvin decides substitution patterns. Who is playing and how much. His secret sauce, more than anything, is that he is a unifier. And that has long been Steve Kerr's strength, but his ability to do that is being challenged right now the same way Ham's was at the beginning of the year when he had Russell Westbrook. A house divided is sure to fall. A house with cracks in the foundation is certain not to survive adverse conditions. And the postseason is all about overcoming one challenge or adversity after another. And that does not happen unless everyone is not only on the same page, but pulling and believing in each other and what their ultimate goal is. All independent agendas have to be put aside. Now, anyone other than a diehard Lakers fan can certainly see that the Warriors have the better overall team. They have a deeper core of quality players. They have more players who have been through the playoffs together. They have the more experienced coach. They have more players who are in their prime, again, among the quality players. They have the better shooters. What the Lakers have, arguably, are better defensive players. And while we've often said defense wins championships, as I noted at the start, professional sports leagues have tilted the scales in favor of offense in today's games. The best defensive teams in the playoffs aren't always the team's in today's game that are winning the championship. The Warriors in 2018 and the Raptors in 2021 are the two teams in the last five years who had the best defense in the postseason and won a ring. Now if you recall those teams were also pretty good pretty versatile offensively especially that 2018 Warriors team. Defense is still a key component don't get me wrong And it very well could be the Warriors' undoing. But they have other advantages in this series that they can or could have exploited to compensate. They just haven't done it. I have to wonder why that is and whether, and one of my biggest questions is Andrew Wiggins has not had anything close to the impact that he had last year for the Warriors. And I wonder, is it because of his father's health and the lingering, or the, uh, the lingering unrest since Draymond Green punched Jordan Poole? Has all that played a part in the Warriors' lack of cohesion? Or in the case of Wiggins, his conditioning, or where he is mentally, how focused he is? Is that, is that story behind us? We don't really know. And that can have a huge impact, particularly on a player as important as Wiggins is. But then I go back to the first round series when they had to come together and play efficient, cohesive basketball. And they did. So can we look at those circumstances and believe that they're having an impact on this series? Or are the Lakers just way more imposing than the Kings? Maybe, thanks to the presence of LeBron, and his vast years of experience compared to the Kings' relative newbieism in the postseason. The Lakers are more mentally resilient, but so much so to win three of the first four games. Now, there is a very real possibility that I discounted the mental or psychological dynamics that are impacting the Lakers-Warriors series. It's happened to me before. The Clippers were the best team going into the bubble, but I was not aware that a large part of the team didn't want to be there. Montrezl Harrell came back from a funeral leave of absence woefully out of shape, and Lou Williams was more interested in scoring chicken wings than following league COVID protocol. If I had known those things, I would have looked at the Clippers a lot different in the the bubble. But I didn't, so I didn't. The dynamics of playing in one central location with no fans was hard to handicap, not ever having seen the playoffs played under those conditions. And for those who may not know, I don't make my living based on getting predictions right. I make my living explaining why things are happening or did happen, as I do in this podcast. Making predictions is one small part of the job. It's a delicious part of the job. It's a part of the job that my employers insist on having us do, because you guys love to hear what we think and critique or cheer, depending on who we choose and which direction we go. And overall, I'd say I have a pretty good track record. Those who would contest that are not following my work on a regular basis. But if I wanted to make that a full-time gig, predicting outcomes, I'd be a bookie or a fortune teller. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball on the United Wecast Network. Please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And before I go, please check out my sponsor, MizzeninMain.com. That's M-I-Z-Z-E-N-A-N-D-M-A-I-N.com. I've talked a lot about their dress shirts, which I wear exclusively for my TV appearances, and how comfortably and form-fitting their performance wear material is, and how easy it is to take care of. You wash, you hang dry, you wear no dry cleaning or arduous ironing, maybe a little steam or a quick tumble dry low to handle any wrinkles. But I wanted to tip you off about their joggers and their t-shirts as well. If you've seen any of the behind the scenes clips of our TV show Speak, you've seen me in both. The t-shirts are super flattering and comfortable and the joggers are light and flexible while still looking sharp. They're that's uh, what I wear almost exclusively going to and from the studio these days. And they're as easy to take care of as the dress shirts and they're quick-drying and stain-resistant. MizzenandMaine.com. And if you use the promo code BUKER, my last name, 35, you will get $35 off your first order. Please check them out. All right, so I don't know where we're going in the next podcast Because I don't know where we're going to stand in the next couple days as far as the postseason is concerned and who is going to be moving forward. But we've certainly had some dramatic things happen as far as the teams that are advancing. To think that we could potentially have the Lakers and the Heat, two play-in teams, making it to the conference finals is extraordinary. What does that mean and is it... exception or the new rule. I don't know if we're going to get into that in the next podcast, but it's one place that we could possibly go. Whatever it is, it will be on the playoffs or player movement because of the playoffs. And it'll be something you probably are not hearing anywhere else. In the meantime, as always, thanks for listening.